Peter was a plain preacher. You didn't have any trouble understanding what Peter had to say. And you can imagine that he could really lift up his voice and preach and uh, lift it up like a trumpet because if he's able to preach and 3,000 people are hearing what he's saying, uh, amen, and I imagine uh, Peter, he had a voice, and uh, he, he talked straight, and when he got done with his preaching, we see the response of his sermon in verse 33, he had offended a whole bunch of people there. When they heard that they, when they heard what he had to say, they were cut to the heart. That's the response of his sermon this time around. Those are the religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, elders in Israel. They were cut to the heart. They were deeply offended. Verse 31, we'll just read the end of what he had to say. Him, Jesus, hath God exalted. He said, that's the one that you guys slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So he's telling them, you guys can't even get your sins forgiven unless you go through Jesus Christ. And God's willing to grant you repentance. And they thought, remember they told uh, Jesus and others, we need no repentance. They didn't think that they needed repentance. And so he's telling them, you need to repent. God will forgive your sins through Jesus Christ, the Prince and the Savior. And we are his witnesses, the apostles. They're the ones representing him. Of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost. So they're saying it's us, and it's the Holy Ghost. And we're witnessing for Jesus Christ. God completely circumvented you. And, and came to us is what Peter is saying. And boy, it made them mad because they're the religious leaders. They're the who's who, you know. Remember when it said the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist? And it went through all the leaders, all the who's who in Judea. And past uh, the civil leaders, past the religious leaders. And then it said the word of the Lord came to John. <laughs> uh, just this guy out of nowhere. A wild man eating locusts coming out of the, the wilderness, and that's who the word of the Lord came to. The common person. Don't ever forget it. God is interested in the common man. And God's preacher will talk plain so that people can understand. That's something we need to remember, huh? And so they said, we are his witnesses. So also is the Holy Ghost. Now, why would he say the Holy Ghost is his witness? Well, because they had all the signs attending what they were doing, whom God hath given to them, and that was the last, last one, that, that last little jab, whom God hath given to them that obey him. You see, a sermon is a thrust. The Latin word uh, that we get our word sermon from means thrust. And so he jabbed them. He didn't hold back his sword from drawing blood. The Bible says that a man is cursed if he does that. But no, he jabbed them and he said, God gives his Holy Ghost to them that obey him, and they hadn't obeyed him. What does it mean to obey in this sense? What do you think he means by obey? Yeah, yeah, that's what he was calling them to, repentance. And for us to obey God and to receive the Holy Ghost, it means uh, Acts 17.30, God's commanded all men everywhere to repent 
and to believe the gospel. So that's how we obey the gospel, is repentance and faith. And if you do that, then you will receive the Holy Ghost. Uh, And then in verse 33, when they heard that, man, they were cut to the heart. And what did they do? Did they say, men and brethren, what must we do? Like the 3,000, remember the last time? What must we do? And, uh, and he says, repent and be baptized, Acts 2.38. Well, this response is different. They didn't repent. They didn't humble themselves. They took counsel to slay them. <laughs> but isn't that what Jesus said would happen? If you'll look at uh, John 16, let's look at the words of our prince and our savior on this matter. And I'll give you a, a, a modern example of this, too. Acts 16 and verse 2. If somebody would read that, uh, maybe Acts 16, verse 2, maybe if, uh, Adam, if you wanted to read that. Uh, Yes, sir. Yeah, John 16, maybe 1 and 2. Yes, thank you. Yes, and so there's a prediction, and so the Jews, they really believed that they were serving God and getting rid of Peter and all that, yeah. To them, it was a problem that stood in the way of the temple worship and all of that, so they thought they were doing God's service. Paul, when his name was Saul, going about, he was serving the Lord, so he thought, Right, trying to get rid of all the Christians. Um, This kind of persecution comes from Orthodox Jewish leaders. Orthodox means straight. So they think that they're straight biblically, Orthodox. So this kind of persecution has always come from the real Orthodox, conservative religious leaders. And it's been that way for 2,000 years. What Jesus said in verse 2, it has been that way, just like he said. It started with the apostles and the Jewish leaders in Judea. And um, on down through history, whether you're talking about the uh, Catholic Church who are trying to honor Mary and defend Mary's honor or defend the Holy Mother Church, uh, they feel the same way about Bible-believing Christians as verse 2 describes. They think that by killing them, they're doing God a service. Whether you're talking about the Muslims who are defending Allah and defending his greatness, it's the same thing. Or even whether you're talking about the the, uh, Greek Orthodox Church of the East that have been guilty of doing the same thing. The Catholics for years, they would bless the instruments that they would use to torture Christians. And if you uh, want an education in church history, I've been saying it ever since I got here, read some of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Just pick it up and read some of it. Um, Some of the things they did, the Christians, it is wicked. It's terrible. Read uh, the the, uh, the Amish and the Mennonite and the Hutterites um, and the others like that. They have their book, and theirs is called The Martyr's Mirror. the first pastor that I sat under, he had a copy of that in his, in his library, The Martyr's Mirror. 
<coughs> and they drew pictures of what they did to him. And I won't explain, I won't go into detail because of a mixed uh, congregation here, but it's terrible, the things that they did. And imagine these instruments of torture. They weren't just happy to burn them at the stake. They wanted them to suffer and to be tortured. So the Catholics, imagine the Catholic priest coming in and the monks blessing, you know, maybe, you know, with their little incense and stuff like that, and blessing, you know, don't cross and everything like that. The instruments of torture, this is just church history, okay? And then the, the Mohammedans um, would poison, mutilate, dismember, and behead Christians. All state churches are capable of and have proven it in the past in America, like the Puritan churches, the state churches in uh, Massachusetts and New England, uh, Maryland, Maryland. They have proven that they will not tolerate Bible-believing Christians and will persecute them. So the history in America from 1630 to 1730 has shown this, that they're capable of that. And Baptist preachers, <clears throat> Baptist preachers back before they were Pentecostals, they were persecuted in America for preaching without a license, and they weren't allowed to start churches. That's one of the things that was accomplished with the Declaration of Independence. I heard about a reporter who went to a local pool right before July 4th and <coughs> asked 12 kids uh, what was the meaning of, the de of Independence Day. And they said one person, one kid, knew the meaning of Independence Day. And uh, the other 11 didn't. That's, that's sad, isn't it? Somebody's dropping the ball on their education. <clears throat> they don't know anything about freedom from King George, uh, taxation without representation, and the freedom to be able to worship the way that you want and be able to start churches. You couldn't start a Baptist church in England. And they came to America, at least the pilgrims did, uh, for that religious freedom. Um, so this has been happening, and... Jesus said that these religious leaders who do this are unregenerate sinners. If you look at John 16, verse 3, the people who do this, they're, un, they're not saved. They're not born again. Unregenerate sinners, regardless of what they profess to believe. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. Now, Pastor John didn't say that. Jesus said that. The people who kill uh, Bible-believing Christians were never saved, never knew the Father to begin with. So you look down through church history, and you follow the trail of blood. I'm not saying you can trace the Baptist church back to John the Baptist. That's silly. But you follow the trail of blood, and the ones who are being persecuted are the true believers. Okay? Um, now, back in uh, Acts chapter 5 and verse 33, they took counsel to slay them, and then stood up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Gamaliel, a doctor of the law. Who was Gamaliel? Does that name sound familiar? What do we know about him? We know he was a Pharisee, right? History tells us, probably through Josephus' history, uh, but history tells us he was a liberal Pharisee, and he followed the liberal uh, rabbis and Pharisees. And uh, what else did he do? He, he did something of note that is interesting to us. 
since we are Yeah, he was Paul's teacher, and he was one of the best. Yep, so Paul learned under this man. And it's interesting what he says here. He's a doctor of the law, and that's referring to God's law. He had in reputation among all the people. Okay, so he's, he's, he's a really high up there in reputation. Commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. So basically saying... Get him out of the room. Let's have a council and talk about this. And he had influence. So he used all of his influence to say something here. And they, and they listened to him. And said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves. What ye intend to do is touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, or Th- I think that's how you pronounce it, boasting himself to be somebody to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him. So the first guy, we don't have any other record outside of the New Testament, but this Judas uh, Josephus talks about him. He led a revolt in A.D. 6. And um, Josephus was a Jew- Jewish historian. And the followers of this Judas of Galilee became the Zealots. So if you study your Bible, you're familiar with the groups in there. The Zealots is one of those major groups in uh, New Testament times. The Zealots. And so they were leading a revolt against whom? Who was he leading a revolt against? Well, the Gentile nation that was uh, over them. He wanted to start a war against Rome, which uh, they were crushed. That's what they expected Jesus to do when he showed up. That's what they thought he was going to do. So they said, he said, well, that, that came to nothing. You know, and he made that big stank. And verse 38, now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men... It will come to naught, just like the other two. He said, just let it alone. If it be of men, it will come to naught. Now, what you're reading is inspired scripture, okay? But what he just said is not true. When you read your Bible, for example, when you read in your Bible, sometimes you read pagan kings. And pagan kings, and you read what they have to say. Well, what they have to say is inspired because it's included in the Bible, but what they have to say is not right a lot of the times. There's a lot of things that are said in the Bible, like, for example, what Martha had to say to Jesus. What she had to say, is it inspired? Yes, absolutely, because it's part of the Bible. But what she had to say, was it right? No, because Jesus corrected her when Jesus came to, to raise Lazarus from the dead. You have things like that happen a lot in the Bible. You can't just take everything, like Job's three friends. Yeah, and then what was the other one who came along, that young guy? Uh, Eliphaz? Um, Elihu. We're going to have to go back and look just to make sure. What they had to say, was it all right? Did everything in there? Yeah. So should we, like, quote that and live by that? (laughs) You know, what Job's three friends had to say? Well, no, because when the Lord shows up, 
He says, who is this, who is this that darkeneth counsel uh, with words? God said he blew it. He didn't get it right, what he had to say. I'm going to have to go back there and look real quick. Going back to Job. So you have, you have uh, inspired scripture, uh, inspired Elihu, yeah. You have inspired scripture containing uh, a lot of different things. And, uh, but because they're in the Bible, they're given by inspiration. So what you have is in this man's words, Gamaliel, something that he said that is, he just said it in desperation, hoping to calm the situation so there wasn't any bloodshed. There's a lot of things that are of men that, that last, that go. And, uh, for example, what happened with uh, Russia? You think about Russia. Um, you think about everything that Stalin did there, his work to form communist Russia. Was that of men? Yes. Did it come to naught? No. No, it's, it's continuing on today. What uh, Mayo Tung did in, in communist China, did it come to naught? Well, no, it's been going on for you know, 50 years or so till today. But it's of men. So what he said is in the Bible, but it's not true. Isn't that interesting? Uh, we have to read our Bibles closely. Uh, think of another one that you read it and... Um, like uh, Ecclesiastes, Solomon. He's talking about things as they are under the sun, right? And what he's talking about, he's a man who's been trying out everything, trying excess of everything to see if there's any satisfaction or pleasure in anything. He comes to the end, he says, there is no satisfaction, no pleasure in anything under the sun. It's all vanity. Now, what he said there is right. It's all vanity. But you, you find people quoting things, from Ecclesiastes, like a Jehovah's Witness, he'll quote that to show that there's no life after the grave. That once you die, you're in the grave, and that's it, and there's soul sleep, you know. So uh, get messed up in your Bible that way. So um, verse 39, but if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. That's true. Lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles... Look at it. And beaten them. They called them in and they humiliated them. Beat them up. So bullies, that's not anything new for uh, kids to be bullied in school. Uh, bullying's been going on for a long time. And uh, they beat them up and then commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they sent the apostles out of there, just humiliated. Now, how do you think that they reacted? Well, they rejoiced. They rejoiced. You know why? Because they felt, they felt that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Uh, do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? I'm going to turn to Matthew 5 and verse 11. Now, they've been listening to Jesus teach, okay? So now they're putting some of that teaching into practice in Matthew 5, verse 11. Jesus said there, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you 
and persecute you. To persecute means to hurt somebody for what they believe. And shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Well, that's just what happened to them. And you know what they did? They said, we're happy men. We're blessed men. And they rejoiced. Verse 12. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Jesus said, if you're persecuted, that means you're on the right side of history. (laughs) And you got rewards coming in heaven. Because history is his story. It's God's story, right? And God sent the prophets. They rejected the prophets. God sent the apostles. The Jews rejected the apostles. And this is what we're seeing in the book of Acts. This is the work of the gospel in Judea, Jerusalem specifically. But in the Judean region, the southern region of, of Israel. And we're seeing the rejection, the wholesale rejection once again of God's preachers. So uh, they went out of there rejoicing. And I also want to read Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Or if somebody else would, read Revelation 1, 9. Now this is what Jesus has to say at the end of the book about this persecution. And I suppose if I was uh, one of the persecuted believers living on the other side of the world, these verses would mean a whole lot more to me. Would somebody read uh, Revelation 1, 9? Yes, so here's, here's John. He'd been talking to the Alpha and the Omega up in verse 8. And uh, he says, I'm in the Isle, which is called Patmos. That's a place where they put prisoners, like a work camp. And he said, I'm here for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So when believers are persecuted... That's why they're persecuted. They're hated, and Jesus said they'd be hated of all men's of all men for His name's sake. Right? In uh, China, in the twentieth century, uh, I've been talking a little bit about the persecution of the Chinese believers. Uh, China, nineteen hundred, was the beginning of what is called the Boxer Rebellion, which is communist China. Uh, the soldiers trying to stamp out Christianity and anything Western, uh, which America is Westerners and England. So anything from Europe, America, they wanted to get rid of it and China. And what they did is beginning in 1900, 186 Protestant missionaries were killed, were killed. And when that persecution started... I bet that they started to study passages like this to say that we must rejoice because, and, and then to take comfort in saying we are worthy, counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And I told you the account of the, the young uh, lady, the teenager that stood up and said, why are you killing us? We've done nothing but bring you uh, 
food and aid and medicine and the gospel, and right in the middle of her sentence, a soldier from behind her just took her head off. And that's one of the vivid examples of that. But that was going on all over the place. And God wasn't done with China. Uh, Somebody said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so after that, the gospel really started to spread throughout China. But, you know, there were people who sacrificed for that. One example uh, in America, one of the Westerners that went to China was C.T. Studd. He was, uh, uh, I think I said, just said America, and that's not right. It'd be England. But he was a cricketer. So C.T. Studd was famous. It would be like talking about Tiger Woods or, I don't know, golf. So whoever the new golf guy is that everybody, like a household name, that was C.T. Studd. But he played cricket. And in his middle life, he, I think he was 53 when he surrendered to go to China. And he went to China and stayed there and planted his life on Chinese soil, as one man put it. And his life, he ended his life in China. He left his wife, and I think for uh, something like 18 years, he spent the rest of his life in China, which is maybe not the best practice for missionaries. But he gave his life for that. Jonathan Goforth is another one that did and uh, saw great revivals in China, and then also were persecuted and treated like Western, they called them Western devils. (laughs) They did not like anything Western in their culture. And so those kind of things have gone on, not just what we read about in the pages of Scripture, but the Holy Spirit, you see, the book of Acts goes on. It just, it didn't end. It didn't end with Acts uh, chapter... 28. It just kept going, and it's the move of the Holy Spirit. So um, will we be persecuted in America? I don't know. But if you're, if you're persecuted at all for any reason, uh, it might not be physical. It might just be intimidation and bullying. Rejoice that you're counted worthy, and you're on the right side of history. Chapter 6 now. Okay, chapter 6, what we're looking at is we're looking at the first deacons in the early church, the first deacons, we're going to learn a little bit about them. Um, we'll read verse 1, and then I'd like to see maybe what your study Bibles have to say. In those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. All right, there was some trouble in in the church. There was a little bit of a division and uh, some complaining between two groups, one, the the Grecians, and the others, the Hebrews, and it was all over the way that the widows were being treated. So what is this all about? Does anybody have a note in your study Bible that would be helpful in identifying the Grecians? Okay. Hellenists. Okay. Uh, the Hellenists were people who accepted. Yeah, and they were they spoke Greek. They were Jewish, and they accepted Greek culture, so they became Hellenized, or Greek in their culture. Uh, anybody else? Just goes to show you. Now, is this a spirit-filled church? 
Yeah, I think so. And was there a great revival going on? Oh, my. This, they're in the midst of revival. And when something good happens, the devil doesn't like it. And look out. Every time something real good happens, the devil's not going to just take it lying down. He's going to come and attack and stir up trouble. So he does. But God wins, you know. So the Grecians, uh, uh, we got from our study Bibles that they're Greek-speaking Jews. I know there's a good bit. There we go. Thank you. That sounds good. Sounds nasally. Um, there's a good bit of people from our church that will listen to these uh, afterwards and, and others. And so uh, we'll keep that ministry going. Uh, the ministry that goes on in the sound booth is an important one, very important one. Um, so what would happen is when Gentiles would conquer the Jews... Oftentimes, their philosophy was to make them exiles, scatter them. That's what God said would happen in the Old Testament, scatter them throughout all the known world. So these are Jews that were dispersed, and uh, because of their dispersion, they're not in their homeland. They were dispersed to lands where people spoke Greek, and so they spoke Greek. And then you had the other ones that were the Hebrews, okay, so they're living in Judea, and they say that the Hebrews spoke Aramaic. That's what they say. Uh, so they, they are speaking in a different tongue, um, and that's part of their culture, okay? And they, they had widows that were being treated differently, so there was some kind of discrimination going on. And the widows, the church was supposed to take care of the widows, okay? And so that involved getting your food daily. Back in this world that they lived in, Guys, they didn't have a refrigerator, and they didn't have a microwave. I don't know what I would do. I really don't. I'm not, I'm not capable of living without a refrigerator <laughs> and a microwave. Some of you probably are. I'll have to come to your house if we have, like, an EMP or something hit us. Um, they had to go daily. They had salt, yeah, salt to preserve meats. And uh, wouldn't it be something to learn how to live like that again? Go back to the pioneer days in America. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was like money. And that's where that expression, that worth your salt. I guess because it would be so important because you had it to have it to live, really. And, and so every day you went to the market to buy food and prepared food and so on. And it was a daily thing. Every day you're out looking for your food. So they had to take care of the widows and some of them were being neglected. All right, I think we got that part there. Now, um, 
in verse 2, then the 12, the apostles, are going to, from the leadership there, they're going to figure out how to solve the problem. They called the multitude of the disciples unto them. Okay, so now they bring the church together and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables, because their job is to give themselves to the word and to prayer from verse 4. So they said, now what we need to do is appoint somebody to take care of this. Wherefore, brethren, now they're talking to the brethren in the church, and they're saying, look you out among you. They're not going to appoint deacons. They're going to they're elect. They want the church to elect deacons. Look you out among you and find seven men, and here's the qualifications for them. Seven men. First of all, they've got to be men. Second of all, they have to be of honest report. And then full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So once you elect them, then they will be appointed over this business. But the apostles did not just say that we, we got seven guys for you, and these are, this is who's going to do it. No, they wanted the congregation. So this is congregational uh, government, really. They wanted the congregation to pick them and elect them and then say, then we'll appoint them by ordaining them. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That was what was most important in the early church, those two things, prayer and the ministry of the word. So these, these, uh, these servants had qualifications. The qualifications were, to put it in different language, male believers, secondly, reputable Reputable, of good report. So they got a good reputation. Number three, they had to be spiritual. Spiritual men. You can't just have anybody in there. He's got to be a spiritual man full of the Holy Ghost. And he's got to have wisdom, right? That's what we all need. But these deacons especially need wisdom to deal with these folks. A sensitive situation. And these widows... So there would be men who had wisdom. Those were the qualifications, and if they had those things. So they're getting direction, and they're finding out what they need to do from the apostles, but then they've got to look out among them and pick, the, pick them out, come back to the apostles and say, this is who we've picked out. Okay, now in verse 2, their job was to serve tables. That's what these deacons would do, serve tables. The Greek word that's translated serve... That's the, that's the word that we get our word deacon from. Their job was to deacon tables. Jesus, he said he's a servant. He said, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And Jesus referred to himself as a servant. Jesus deaconed. He served. And we're all supposed to serve, to deacon. But there are people who are <coughs> chosen specifically to be Deacons in a congregation. Now, right here, this far in the, the story of the New Testament and the early church, at this point, they're just servants. They're, this is not an official thing. In other words, there's no office of a deacon like there would be later on established in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There would later be the office of a deacon. At this point, it's not an office. It's not official. They're just servants. But this would become... Uh, the diaconate or the, the deacons. Okay, 
Now, in verse 5, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose, and here's the men that they chose, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip of Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Okay? Here's these seven men. Two of them, Stephen and Philip, were very evangelistic. They weren't all that way. But it just goes to show you we're not all the same. <clears throat> the ways that God will use us. Our gifts and our callings are different. But two of them, they were very, very evangelistic. So we start to see what a, a deacon is capable of in the New Testament. But ultimately... Yes, he's got to be a spiritual man, but a deacon serves tables. He, he serves. So in our church today, uh, which we're not a good example, I don't think so. I mean, uh, we're trying to be, but, um, and we're going to give an account for what we're doing. But in our church, like a, and in any church that's Bible-believing, the deacons set up communion, okay? They set it up, and then they help to serve communion, Right now we have one uh, deacon that has been ordained. And so we have men who are helping out. Uh, this church could use, it'd be nice to have another one. We don't have to have one. And a church doesn't have to have deacons, you see. It is a bad idea uh, to say, well, we're a church. And in the Bible, we have two offices. The, the elder or the bishop or the pastor, they're all the same thing. And the deacon, there's two offices, so we ought to have both. Well, no, you don't have to. If just two or three are gathered together in the name of Jesus, that's the most basic form of a church, okay? A church, not all churches have pastors, okay? But you can get together, you can pray together, read the Word of God, and uh, have somebody, you know, two or three people give an exhortation, two or three men give an exhortation, and have a church service, and then talk about maybe something that you want to do to help uh, less fortunate people. That would be a, a good little, good little church group. But people make a mistake by thinking that you have to have two or three deacons. Now, granted, that's ideal. That is ideal. But here's the thing. This is what people miss. Look out among you. If you can find two or three that meet these qualifications then God has given you these deacons. If you can't find two or three men that meet these qualifications, God has not given you two or three deacons. If we got one, we got a treasure. I'm, I don't mean to embarrass you, Brother Adam. I'll stop. But um, Brother Adam, he's gold. He's precious. Take care of him. Encourage him. Because uh, not every church, I'm telling you. Uh, I know a little bit of what I'm talking about. Not every church has a man like that. So... Um, I thank God for him. All right, Adam, I'll stop. I'm sorry. But, um, he, you know, he's an example, and he knows that. He knows he has to live by this. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, that's the most important thing. Okay? If you're telling somebody, let's just say, somebody comes to you. Um, well, let's just say you're talking to my friend Meatball, or you're talking to Beth's friend uh, Cassandra, and they say, 
ah, I need a church to go to. What do you recommend? What would you say? What would you say to look for in a church? Um, according to Acts chapter 6, verse 4, you have to go to a church. If they're spirit-filled, they'll see two things as being primary. And that is the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word, right? So, uh, we've all heard um, different evangelists say, you know, if you trusted Christ as your Savior, go find a good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. That's good advice. If, the, if, if, they, if, they, if they're serious about Bible study, you know, something right is happening in that church. I, I talked with somebody, um, I won't say who, but somebody in this area, and before they came to our church, and they said that they had gone around to a lot of different churches in this area, not trying to put us up on a pedestal, I'm not. But they said, you'd be surprised. You can go to service after service and never really hear the Word of God. And it's, it's shocking, they say. You won't get anything. You go service after service, and you won't get anything. There's no preacher. There's no Bible student that's, that's teaching it. That's in this area. It sounds like a Catholic church. Yeah. And, it, and, it's, and it's, that's true about them. And it, but it's, I guess it's not just true about them. It's true about a lot of churches. There's a lot of things going on, but not much Bible teaching. And uh, that's a failure. Yeah. Spiritual things, yeah. Money, yeah. So they might, you might come to church, and all they preach is attendance, giving. And telling you, you're not leaving this building until you collect a certain amount of money. Yeah, we got to raise this money for this thing, and right. if you give, God will give back to you, and mm-hmm. yep, and uh, that's that falls short uh, by far, yeah. And then prayer. Churches who really emphasize prayer. Um, now. I know of churches, and I just, you know, I, this is speaking of my, my faults as a pastor. Um, I know of churches that they pray before their morning service. They have a prayer meeting. So they will pray, like, either uh, before Sunday school or, before, or in the middle of Sunday school in the church service. They pray because they, they believe that we really need to have some concentrated prayer to, uh, to get God's blessing on the service. Not just standing up and giving a formal prayer. You know, and they not just that, but they'll pray before their uh, Sunday night service, and then Wednesday night. You know, some churches just do just strictly prayer meetings. Now, I don't think that that's a good idea because I think people need a little something from the Word of God midweek. But to really put an emphasis, take your time and pray. You know, like in most churches, say on a Sunday morning service, how many minutes do you think we actually pray? Probably it amounts to about three minutes. And if a person has only come to church on Sunday morning, um, you know, they're not praying much throughout the week. The church is not praying much together. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. Yep. And so. Yeah. Yes. Isn't that, isn't that sad? 
Just all the things that are just really important. Yes. And you hardly hear even special songs. You know, you used to hear like special numbers and people singing about the blood. And yeah. There's power in the blood. Yeah, that's a good old song. So uh, I just think about this and I think now these are the leaders. So they're praying. They're not praying together with the church. They're praying individually. But as a church, man, they had prayer meetings. I know churches who do this. They have for their young people. Sometimes they'll have all night prayer meetings. You know, lock-ins, yep, and they, they don't get together and play video games, they get together and pray. Some churches that have a lot of rooms, they will have one room that is uh, praying for China, another room that's praying for India, and people get together for these, they just have a special thing throughout the year, and they'll, they'll one, day, one day in a year, they'll get together and pray for different fields and stuff like that. Just different creative ways to pray. Prayer walks, things like that. I'm just saying that that's the emphasis in the Bible. We think, you're looking for a good church, this is what we say. Uh, what kind of youth ministry do they have? Okay, uh, what's the stage look like? What kind of seating does it have? Where is it located? You know, is the pastor charismatic? Is he? Does everybody like him? Um, you know, is it... Is it casual? We, we might do all kinds of things. How many people go there, you know? I'm just saying it's different from what the Bible uh, says. So we want to emphasize these things and definitely, absolutely, the blood. And um, so verse 5, the saying, please the whole multitude. Okay, so things are kind of getting fixed here. There was some trouble, but they said, all right, this, this sounds good. This will work. And everybody's pleased with it. And they chose Stephen and so on and so forth. Then, verse 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. This is the ordination and the appointment of these guys by the apostles once they were elected by the congregation. And the word of God, look what happened as a result. The word of God increased, the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Okay, so there they were. Ordained. The ordination is just a formal sign of appointment and recognition that these men have these qualifications, and it shows their association with them between the apostles and the deacons as being assigned to a special service. That's all that, all that it does, that they're assigned to this special service so that everybody else knows it. And uh, probably the priests, somebody said this, probably the priests that were obedient in verse 7 to the faith, they, they may, it may be because they, they saw the veil that was torn in the temple. And as a result of that witness, God used that to bring out some priests for his glory. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this study today. I thank you for the Word of God. It's so rich and it's so full. Uh, and there's so much for us. And God, help us not to be lifted up in pride. Help us just to be on the right track. And God, forgive us for our shortcomings and our... Our lukewarmness, help us to be red hot and on fire for you. It's a work that, that can only be done by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.